John chapter 3, 16 through 21. We have hit 316. This will be the third Sunday in a row that we've done something with John 316. It's, it's like the fulcrum of the gospel. It is the passage in Christianity that we all love and know and apply and recite all the time. So two Sundays ago we looked at it in conjunction with this serpent on the pole and it showed us how God loved us and that he gave us his one and only son. Last week we just looked at John 3.16 in and of itself and dissected it word for word. And this week we're going to use it as the launching point as we go through the rest of this paragraph that goes down through verse 21. So as we read the scriptures here, I'd like for you, like we did last Sunday, to recite with me John 3.16, and then I will pick up from there and read the rest of this passage. So if you could, everybody recite it with me. You can read it or you can say it by memory. Ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then in 17, John continues. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, we gather now around your word, and I have not come here to make a speech. I have come here to proclaim the truth from your inspired scriptures. And Father, these people, I pray that they've not come here to be entertained or to be passively involved. I pray that they have come to worship you by engaging their ears and their minds and their hearts to worship you through the listening of the proclamation of your word. So we devote these next minutes to you, Father, and pray that you would be glorified and that you would wash us and strengthen us and ready us for worship of you in everything we do in the coming week. And I pray this in the strong name, the strong name of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. For God so loved the world, I said last week that the better way to read that is, this is how God loved the world. He gave a gift. He gave his son. He gave himself to us because we know that the word was with God and the word was God. And so this is how God loved the world. He gave us this gift. And let me just stop for a moment and talk about this love of God. This is not just mental assent that he loved the world. He loved mankind. He didn't just think, you know, I love them. No, he demonstrated his love for us in that he gave a gift. He put action to his love. He acted out on that love. It wasn't just a thought from God. And the action was giving. I liken this to, to a man. Let's say a man dates a girl for five years. And for four of those five years, he tells her over and over again that he loves her. And then finally they get engaged, and they're engaged for three years. And through a three-year engagement, he's continually saying, you know, I love you, I love you. 
But he's not ever putting action to it. Because if he loved her after eight years, would he not put a ring on her finger? And show and say, I want to give you a sign of my love for you and I want to spend my life with you. God, God's, God's like that. He said he loved the world and then he said, I'm going to show you how. And I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to make you mine once and for all. And I want us to just quickly look at three aspects of this gift that God gave us. This gift of his son. We need to understand three things specifically about it. First of all, this gift, this gift was extremely costly to God. Extremely costly to God. God gave us his only son, and we know that this giving was giving unto death. Giving unto death. When we look in our society and we see a human being die for another human being, whoa, it's powerful, isn't it? There's books written on this. We find this throughout all the novels that mankind has written over the years. There's movies about humans dying for other humans, Saving Private Ryan. It happens in Last of the Mohicans, my favorite movie of all time. It's even in that one. Throughout all of our literature and all of our theater, we see it over and over again. We put a value on the fact that a human being would dare to die for another human being. Well, this is what's so impressive about God's gift. Because God's gift, God dies for a human being. It is very costly. We have no category for understanding how God died for man. This is not man for man, although Jesus was a man. We also know that Jesus was God. So this is God for man. This is creator for the created. That's backwards. This is infinite for the finite. That's what happened. That's the cost of the gift that God gave to the world, to mankind. So there's number one. It was a very costly gift for God to give. Number two, this gift that God gave, it was truly a gift. It was not earned by mankind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, not whoever keeps every letter of the law, not everybody who comes to church faithfully, not everybody who gives money to the church, no, those, those don't save at all. It's belief in God's only Son. It's like that serpent on the pole back in John 3, 14 and 15. Everyone who looked at the serpent on the pole lived. And they only looked because they believed. And so man cannot earn this gift. God does not owe this gift to us because of something we did. No, God gave. And we receive it by believing. So man has nothing to do with earning this gift. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Paul wrote this 30 years before we think that John wrote this passage. And it says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So God gave us a gift. Man did not earn this. That's number two. Number three, this gift is eternal life. Never to be revoked. 
when God gives this gift to those that believe, He will never say, give me that back. It's eternal life. Think about eternity for a moment. Just think about that. We hardly have a category for that. We're so finite. But God gave us a gift that keeps on giving forever. Never to be revoked. John 10, 27-29, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. You understand? Never. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father and I are one. Wow. Deity of Christ. We're one. Two, we're one. And it can never be taken away. No one can snatch those that believe authentically in Jesus Christ out of the clutch of God the Father. Can't be lost. Can't be gained. We can't earn it and work our way into it. And we can't work our way out of it because our God is faithful to give it and then to keep us once we believe. Biblical Christianity. You can see that throughout all the scriptures. And so here's a summary of John 3.16 before we move on. The giving of His only Son was God's way of loving us because it was extremely costly to God, totally free to man, and eternally beneficial to true believers. That's another way of saying John 3.16. And we launch into that, and now we're going to see Jesus speaking to the rest of this, in the rest of this passage. Let's pick up in verse 17. And I want to show you here that in verse 17 and 18, John is going to clarify why Jesus was sent. So we're still in why God gave His Son, and we're going to understand very clearly here, point number two of this sermon, why Jesus was sent to the world. John 7, 3.17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So we see here that the word became flesh for a very specific purpose. And that purpose was to die so that he could save those that would believe in his death in their place. That's why he came. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist said the minute he laid eyes on Jesus Christ for the first time. The purpose God sent His Son, the purpose the Word became flesh and dwelt among us was so that the Word, the Son of God, could die in our place. And if we believe that, we would have eternal life. That's why He came. So Jesus, let me be very clear. Jesus is not a psychotherapist or a self-help guru. He did not come to help us out in life and just the the things that are going on in life. He did not come to make us debt-free, although being debt-free is important. But that's not why He came. That's a benefit of why He came, but that's not the purpose. He didn't even come for us to have strong marriages, as important as that is. We don't need Jesus only for strong marriages or first for strong marriages. He didn't come so that we could have stable, strong, vibrant employment. Although we need the Lord to provide us that, that's not the primary purpose for which He came. Jesus came because we were dead in our trespasses. 
and we needed a remedy. He came so that we could be delivered from a very, very desperate circumstance that blows away being in, up to our eyeballs in debt. That's nothing compared to where we are without Christ in our lives. We're a most desperate people, and he came to meet a most desperate need. And a lot of cultural Christianity that we swim around in looks at Jesus from a jilted perspective. And I think some of what we see on the bookshelves in the bookstore make Jesus out to be a psychotherapist. He is the Savior of the world. He blows away psychotherapy and self-help. He is the Savior, the only hope. And guess what? We have him. God gave him. And God won't take him away if we believe. So we see that he is not merely here to help us. He's here to save us. And I want you to understand you need to be saved. And if you have been saved, you needed to be saved from something really desperate. And that's called death. You shall not perish, but you shall have eternal life. That's the gospel. So Jesus came to save us. Now look at this. John says, John says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. So we need to understand the whole Bible when we read passages like that. Because what we're really looking at here is Jesus' first coming. When Jesus, the Word, became flesh, he became flesh not to condemn, but to free us from bondage to sin and to take away the sins of the world. And so we're talking about the first coming here. Christmas is not about condemnation, <laughs> is it? Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save, and we celebrate Christmas because condemnation is being removed from God's people. Can you imagine celebrating Christmas if we were celebrating our condemnation? <laughs> we wouldn't have Christmas, would we? We're celebrating being delivered from condemnation. So Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Listen to this. I would even say to you, Jesus came to be condemned himself in our place because condemnation was deserved. Sin happened against God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we are righteous. So Jesus came to be condemned in our place, and that's why we celebrate Christmas. It's being removed from us. It was put on Christ, and then he defeats the condemnation because he rose on the third day. That's integral to our faith. Jesus says this in John 12, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, this is going to sound like what Tony read in 1 John 1, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So now let's go there, this last day. Because there is a time, there is a time, church, where Jesus does come to condemn First time he came to save. Second time he comes to judge. We've read this a couple of times on these last few Sunday mornings. Revelation 19, 11 through 6. Close your eyes and listen to this and picture this. 
This is Jesus' second coming. That's a guarantee. It will happen. And, and John wrote in Revelation, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. So he will come to judge, but he didn't on this first term. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of his wrath and the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So John here cites for us Jesus' first coming. It was not one of condemnation and judgment. It was one of salvation and deliverance. But we do not need to take our eyes off of that certain day in the future where Jesus is promised to come again, and that will be a coming of judgment and wrath. So the second coming is something very, very serious. Let me read for you... Maybe the most horrifying passage of Scripture I know in the Bible. Okay, this, this, this is a terrifying passage. Matthew 7, starting in verse 21. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a very, very difficult passage to read, but it is true. And we need to be guarded that this will not be true of us. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father will enter into the kingdom of heaven. In that day, many will say to me, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. It's a terrifying passage. It's a passage of judgment. Jesus did not come the first time to judge, but there will be a time where he will say to those, who even who say, Lord, Lord, to him, but they didn't really believe in him. He was just a self-help guru. And he will say, I didn't know you, and you need to depart from me for eternity. May that never, may John Matthew 7 21 through 23, may that never be true of anyone in this room. When you say, Lord, Lord, say it out of belief and obedience and worship. So there is a time for judgment, but Jesus says here in this passage, I did not come on this first time to judge. Now let's look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. So he's going a little further in explaining this condemnation issue. Whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So here's the question for us this morning. 
If the Son of God did not come to condemn, why do we read in verse 18 that some are condemned already? How do we reconcile that? I thought he didn't come to condemn, but there's condemnation already. Confused. What's going on? We need to understand, we need to be real humble here for a moment. We need to understand that every one of us is condemned already. Our default position in life, in our relationship towards God, our default position is we stand condemned. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. No one does good. No, not even one. David wrote it in Psalms. Paul quotes it in Romans. That's all of us. We are all condemned already. But God gave His only Son that whoever believes shall not perish, shall not be condemned, but shall be eternally with Him. Good news. There's a cure to our condemnation. And it's right here. Found only in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So we are all condemned already. That's why he says we shall not perish because we are all set to perish if something doesn't happen. Something's got to happen. We can't do it. Something's got to happen to us by an outside source. And that outside source is the Creator God who made you and me, put our image, put His image in us. We are image bearers. And He came and delivered us from condemnation. And that's an act of grace that was not deserved. To substantiate this, just look at the end of John chapter 3, verse 36. Look right over there. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God, what? Let me hear that word. Remains on him. Remains. Already condemned in verse 18 of John 3. That already ties directly to that remains in John 3.36. Circle those two words and draw a line to them. We are all under condemnation. But Christ comes to deliver some of us from it. Those of us that will believe. John 5.24 Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, on, believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. We're all living in a state of death. We're heading for death. But his death in our place gives us life. Romans 8, 1 through 2, Paul says, There is, there, there is therefore... Now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We're under a law of death. We're under a law of condemnation, but Christ removes it. So understand with me now this morning, we all are condemned before Christ saves us. We all need Jesus Christ. Contrary to what some people believe, there are no neutral people. Jesus didn't come to a world that was neutral about God. There's no neutral people, and Jesus came, and some believe in Him, and so they've given eternal life, and some say, no, I'm not going to believe in Him, and they're, they're going to perish for all of eternity. No, everyone is already 
condemned. And Christ came in order to make enemies his allies. Enemies, children of God. He came to make those that were condemned to be no longer condemned. And he came to take dead people and make them eternally alive. That's you and that's me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. Why? Because God gave a very costly and free and eternal gift. And I have believed in that. And many in this room have as well. And we have great hope for a long eternity in the presence of God. So we're all under condemnation at one point, and so the question that we must ask is, has condemnation been removed from me? I'm going to tell you, that is the biggest question you will ever ask yourself or another person, and the answer to that is critical to eternal proportions. Has condemnation been removed from me? Because you need it removed, everyone in this room. And many can say, yes, yes it has, and that's why I sing with a smile on my face, rejoicing in the truth that I am now free from condemnation. I have passed from death to life. And there are others in this room that sing with sorrow and guilt and not understanding because there is condemnation that remains. And maybe you can't put your finger on it. Maybe this morning you're hearing this message and you're starting to see clearly, yes, I feel like a condemned person. God is showing me that I am under condemnation and I need to be forgiven of my sins so that I can no longer be condemned. I feel dead and I need to be alive. I pray that you hear that this morning, that you would embrace this gift that God gave you that was costly, that was free. And that's eternal, should you choose to believe. In this passage, verse 18 says, there's only one way for condemnation to be removed, and it is that we believe in the name of the only Son of God. It's very exclusive. There's no other way to be right with God than through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 14, Six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's a very narrow gate. It's very exclusive. Acts 4 says this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. So we have to believe in the Son, Jesus Christ, to be forgiven. Do you know what? There are people in this world that don't know that. There's people in this world right now that do not know that the only way to become uncondemned before God is through His only Son, Jesus Christ. Think about that. This is the key that unlocks eternal life. And there's people that don't have this key. There are people in Stephenville, Texas, Heiko, Glen Rose, Granbury, Dublin, 
that don't know this truth. But we do. And if you didn't know it before you came here this morning, you've just been exposed to the most important truth that you could ever hear. And so you've been blessed by God to be able to be here this morning to hear this truth. And if you've heard this truth every Sunday for 30 years, you're blessed by God again this morning to be reminded that you have the gift of eternal life and you have heard the most important truth that could ever be said to a man or a woman. What are we going to do about those out there that don't know this truth? Because there's many in America. We've got to take this to those people. And we've got to go to Africa, and we've got to go to HEB, and we've got to always be pointing people to this truth to deliver them from condemnation because we're dealing with eternal issues here. It's a big deal. So think about ways that you can usher this truth into the people's lives that you will encounter in the coming weeks. Let's look at number three, point number three, last point of the sermon. We'll look at verses 19 through 21. And we're going to see that there is some light and there is some darkness. And there's people that dwell in these two. And I want you to be thinking as we go through these two verses, do you love the light or do you love the darkness? That's the question. Do you love the light or do you love the darkness? Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So this takes us back to John's prologue. John 1, 4, in him is life, and the life was the light of men. The light came in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, verse 10, the true light was coming into the world, verse 9. He was in the world. The world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him, did not receive him. His own people he came to, and they did not receive him either. Why? Because they loved the darkness. They didn't want to be in this true light. Jesus says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So let's observe a few things about John 3, 19 through 20, just those two verses here. I've got five things I want us to look at quickly. First of all, we see that the light has come in the world, and this harkens us back to John 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The true light came into the world. So the light has come into the world. Number two, some people love the darkness rather than the light. They loved the darkness in verse 19 rather than the light. Now this word love is a strong word. We have watered it down. We have watered this word down. I want you to read this in John 3 in the full context of an extreme love. Because God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That's extreme love. God gave up much. He gave up His ultimate. He gave up Himself for the world. That's extreme. But here we see that people loved the darkness. That love also is extreme. Why? Because man loves himself. And to come out of the darkness into the light means man has to give himself up. 
we have to do what God did. God gave himself up for us, and we have to die to ourselves, gives ourselves up, and come out of the dark shadows and stand in broad daylight before God. And we do that when we believe. We do that when we believe. And so, people loved the darkness rather than the light. Now, why do they love the darkness more than the light? Number three, because their works are evil. It says it right there at the end of verse 19. They are comfortable being cloaked and shrouded in darkness. We feel safe there. We can hide there. We can be secluded there. And we choose to live there because we're not exposed. Number four, they hate the light and they don't come to it. They choose, therefore, to live in the darkness. And then number five, why do they hate the light and don't come to it? Well, it says it right there at the end of verse 20, lest his works should be exposed. This is why people do not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because we're all condemned, we've all sinned, and some say, I, I understand this, I want freed from this, I want eternal life, I'm stepping out into the light, here I am, Lord. And others say, I'm not going out there. I will not leave my comfort zone here in this darkness. I will not because that means I'm going to give myself up, and I'm not going to do that. So, people love being concealed. But you know what? They're not concealed. Concealed from man. You can live in secret sin, and man doesn't know a thing about what's going on in your life. And you're concealed but you're not concealed before God. I've said it a hundred times already. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. God knows that you're in the darkness. God knew that there was a time when I dwelt in darkness and he called me to step out into the light, and I did. And I now live in the light predominantly. I have my moments. But when I realize I'm in the dark, I step out into the light. Say, God, I'm, I'm out of that. Here I am. I'm in the light. I want to be real before you, Lord. So this is why people don't come to Christ. They don't want to be exposed. And they believe the lie that they can remain concealed. And they can from man, but they can't from God. And no one thinks while they're going through that that we're dealing with eternity. This is not for a few years. This is eternity at stake. Do you live in the darkness or do you live in the light? Let me give you some examples of this. This starts out early in our life. I was talking to a young family a couple of weeks ago. They've got some kids, and uh, their house is set up in such a way that they, you can go from one side of their house to the other totally through two different routes. Okay? There's not like a common room that you have to navigate through. There's two completely unique routes that you can go from one side of the house to the other side of the house. And these parents tell me that when they're in the den area, say, and they hear their kids going the second route that doesn't include going by them, they know something's up. 
What's going on here? These kids are going the dark way, are they not? They're going the dark route. And so the dad or the mom gets up and says, I think I'm going to go shed some light on this situation. So they go to the back route and shine light on it, and exposure happens. I mean, that's a simple, simple example that's happening to us as children, little bitty children, because that's our default. This happens to a man on a business trip, alone in a hotel room with a TV and a computer. Is he going to live in the darkness where none of us are going to know, or is he going to step out into the light before the Almighty God and say, I want to live eternally for your glory? So I'm not, going to, I'm not going to dwell in that darkness. It happens with a college guy when his roommates are gone. What's he going to do in the alone time in the darkness? Is he going to step out of it and stay in the light before God? That's the battle that we're talking about. That's what's going on. There's another one. There's, there's the, the woman that lives in the darkness of being riddled with anxiety. And no one knows it because when she's around everybody else, everything's happy, bubbly, bright, crisp, cheery. But she dwells in darkness of being riddled with anxiety. Come out of that darkness and stand in the light. God does not want you anxious. He wants you trusting in Him in all circumstances. Last one. God's called us to be accountable to one another and to Him. He gave us church so that we can have accountability relationships. Why? You don't, you don't save me if I'm accountable to you and I'm honest to you with what I'm doing. You don't save me. God does. But I need to be accountable with you so that you call me out of the darkness. Come here, Edward. Stand in the light. Don't dwell over there. Get over here. Stand in the light. That's why we have accountability. That's why we have Rocky Point Baptist Church. That's why we come together. Because we are holding one another accountable to be people who dwell in the light. And we're all going to have moments where we're tempted to stay in the darkness. And I need you yanking me out of that stuff and pulling me into the light. And you need it from me. So accountability is all about living in the light. You know, we see this. This happened back in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verse 8. When man sinned, what did man do? He covered himself, and then he hid in the shadows, the Bible says. He hid in the shadows of the trees and the bushes. He ran for the darkness. And like those parents I was telling you about, God came and walked in the garden and said, Man, where are you? <laughs> Here I am, hiding in the darkness. And he says, You come out into the light. So this has been going on all the way back to Genesis. This goes on in our early, early childhood, and this goes on right now in our adult lives. So we're lurking in the shadows, or we're tempted to at least, and we need to be pulled out into the light. Verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may clearly be seen that his works have been carried out in God. What is coming to the light. I'm going to, we're going to wrap up here. What is it that, mean, that it means to come to the light? Well, first, it's believing in Jesus Christ. It's looking to that serpent on the pole, 
in Numbers 21, looking at that cross of Christ and saying, I believe that that's my cure, and God cures us. And he keeps us healthy for eternity. Secondly, coming to the light is obeying Christ. So we believe and we obey. We believe and we obey. Tony read in 1 John 5, 1, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Obey. Practice. But if we walk in the light, if we obey... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we need to believe, and then we need to obey. We can't obey if we don't believe. And we have here in verse 21 what I would call a surprise ending to this verse. So we need to believe and we need to obey in Christ. And then look at what it says, the very last phrase of verse 21 so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in what? In God. What does that mean? Where, where's me in that? Well, I've got some works, but it says they're going to be carried out in God, and we want that to be seen. Well, Jesus spoke to this in the Sermon on the Mount as well. So tell me if this rings true. You are the light of the world. So here we are on this light concept, light and darkness. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father in heaven. So we are to walk in the light so that people see God working in us. Walking in the light gives glory to God. We don't say, hey, look at me. I'm walking in the light. Why don't you join me over here? It's pretty good. No, the authentic Christian walks in the light for the glory of God. Not for the glory of himself. What does that get us? I don't want to impress you. You know why? Isaiah 2.22 says, Stop regarding man who merely has breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? That means if I'm impressing you, you're going to die one day. What's that going to get me? But I need to walk in the light for the glory of God who will never cease drawing breath, if you will. So the authentic Christian comes out of the darkness into the light for the glory of God. Of God. This is not look at me religion. Christianity, biblical Christianity, is not a look at me religion. It is a look at God religion or faith. God did the works. God enables us to glorify Him, and God draws us to the light. We will not go there on our own. We need Him to say, Come on, get over here. In the darkness, I am King. If I dwell in the darkness, I am the king of my life, and that's called pride. But when I walk out into the light, God is king, and I am made little, and that's where we need to be.
So with that, let me close with prayer. Father, we are struck with this truth of light and darkness. Father, we know what it means to love the darkness and to hate the light. Every one of us can identify with what has been said here this morning in these Scriptures. Father, I pray, oh, I pray, God, that You would draw those in this room that are dwelling in darkness, that love it, that hate the light. I pray that this morning You would draw them out of that and they would say, I need the light. I need Jesus Christ. Father, show them that when they get there, the freedom is inexplicable. That the humility is actually a good feeling. It's so good to be right with You, Father. There's nothing better than being right with You. Would You show those in this room that are not right with You that that light is the best place for them to be? Father, we, we need words like this often. Would You replay these words in our minds and in our hearts this next week? Would you bring these words to our lips when we encounter someone that's dwelling in darkness and they need to know that if they believe in the name of Jesus Christ, they can be brought into the light? Father, you've given us your image. We bear your image. You've created us to worship you. You've made every man and every woman ever really deep down inside to want to live in the light and be right with you. But our world is so confused that and deceived so many that they think the light is actually bad. Father, change that in the lives of people and use us to do it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.